Have you ever mistaken someone's identity? In 1947 here in D.C., the normal routines of state visits and dinners and luncheons were going on, where much of the business of politics is conducted. It was also up in Princeton, the bicentennial year of Princeton University. And so in June of 1947, Princeton hosted a gala event for dignitaries. Probably the most well-known person of the time who was there, other than President Truman himself, was Dwight Eisenhower who many people then would have said had just won World War II. Eisenhower was just being won over to Truman's side on the issue of Soviet containment. Truman was trying to convince him to join Truman on the Democratic ticket in 1948. Anyway, at the main luncheon that day at Princeton for Truman and Eisenhower and other dignitaries, there were sprinkled a number of Princeton's most noted faculty and academics, like Albert Einstein. Among them was the celebrated archaeologist Dr. Thomas J. Preston. Preston was in his 80s. He had succeeded in business and university administration. He was an expert on all things Italian from the first century to the Middle Ages. He was accompanied by his wife, Frances. Seated at the same table with the Prestons, Truman was speaking with Professor Preston's wife, Frances, about the remodeling work at the White House going on then. General Eisenhower, sitting at the same table, overheard the conversation. Well, Eisenhower had lived in Washington a few different times between the wars, and so making conversation, he simply asked Mrs. Preston where she had lived. She replied, well, the same place as Margaret Truman. And Eisenhower seemed a little flummoxed, and President Truman chimed in, You're talking to Mrs. Grover Cleveland. Eisenhower had not realized that the elderly Mrs. Preston was actually the remarried widow of Grover Cleveland, the 22nd and 24th president of the United States. Sixty years earlier, she had been the first marriage to a sitting president in American history, had been hers there in the White House. She had become and remains to this day the youngest first lady ever, 21 years old. Now, she had been out of the White House by this point for half a century, married to Professor Preston by that point for much longer than she had been married to President Cleveland before he died. Eisenhower could be forgiven for not knowing this elderly woman was the celebrity first lady of a lifetime before. But it's interesting, isn't it, how hidden true identities can be to even the nearest observers. And that is the thinnest thread by which this introduction takes us to Matthew's Gospel. (laughs) But you enjoy your history lessons. And it is true that the Pharisees did not recognize the Messiah, which was the point of all the scriptures they constantly taught about. They were missing it. That's what we've been seeing in Matthew's Gospel, where we've seen Jesus in chapters 11 and 12 answer doubts of skeptics, answer doubts of friends like John the Baptist. And yet Jesus' true identity remained unclear to many around him, despite the fact that from his teachings to his actions, Jesus was constantly teaching and demonstrating to those around him with eyes to see and ears to hear who he was 
and what he'd come to do. We left the story last week at an inflection point. If you're open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, you'll find it on page 817 in the Bibles provided. Uh, the strongest act against Jesus so far in his public ministry had just taken place in Matthew chapter 12, verse 14. The religious leaders have conspired together to destroy him. Why such opposition? They could see by Jesus' healing on the Sabbath and his treatment of other of their customs that Jesus was teaching the Scriptures differently than they were and in a way which seemed to point to himself. And the people were following him. Realizing the danger, they would now organize for decisive action against Jesus. How would Jesus respond to that? And what can we learn from that? That brings us to our passage for this morning, Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 to 21. And as I read to you, listen for what we learn about who Jesus is. Let me just begin by reading that last verse we looked at last week, chapter 12, verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. I want us to notice three aspects of Jesus' identity in this passage. First, we learn that Jesus is the special servant of the Lord. Jesus is the special servant of the Lord. Second, we learn that Jesus is silent before his enemies. Jesus is silent before his enemies. And third, we learn that Jesus is the Savior of the nations. He's the Savior of the nations. We'll go through every verse of this, but not in exact order. We're taking it more topically in order to make it clearer. Uh, we're going to begin with his identity, which is so clear there in verse 18. As Yahweh describes his servant, and Matthew tells us by the Holy Spirit that this is who Jesus is. And then we'll go to the strange part that people don't understand, the silent part. But then if he's the Lord's servant, why is he silent? And why does he enjoin silence? And then we'll go to the fact that he is the Savior. And we'll consider what it means for him to be the Savior of the nation. So we'll cover all the verses but not by merely going straight through. I pray that as we study this passage, you will see more clearly who Jesus is and who he can be for you today. Let's begin by noting, number one, that Jesus is the special servant of the Lord. Look at verse 17. <clears throat> this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. Well, here in these few phrases from the beginning of Isaiah 42, Matthew shows us how Jesus taught his disciples to read the Scriptures. 
so much of the teaching Jesus gave to the disciples is his taking the scriptures of the Old Testament and explaining them to them and explaining how they point to him. If you want to see more of this, you can look at Luke 24 this afternoon where you see two different occasions where Jesus apparently went through the Old Testament scriptures showing how they pointed to him from the prophets, the law, from the writings to the histories. When Matthew writes here in verse 17, this was to fulfill, the, the this he's referring to is that silence Jesus commanded of those whom he healed here. We'll think about that silence more in our second point. But let's first notice that this entire passage that Matthew cited from Isaiah was a powerful explanation about the Messiah. Matthew has pointed his readers to Isaiah already a number of times. You know, it surprises some people who are new to Christianity to find out how much of our understanding of Jesus comes from the Old Testament. But that really is the point of that large part of the Bible. Israel's history was meant always to find its climax and fulfillment in Jesus Christ, in his person and work, and the international people that he would build, as we see in this very passage. You cannot have Christianity if you unhitch it from the Old Testament. You simply have a new and different religion. So when Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, and he says famously, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. He's not simply referring to the ethical teachings of the Proverbs or the personal devotion of the Psalms. No, Paul's next sentence is, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Friends, much of what we learn in the Bible about Jesus Christ and his kingdom is rooted in the Old Testament, like in, in this very passage here that we study. So brothers and sisters, do not neglect to read through and pray through and meditate on and study the Old Testament. So we as a church do understand and have always understood it to be part of God's unerring revelation of himself and of his will. The New Testament is full of places like this one in Matthew where it teaches us to read the Old Testament. That's why you'll notice most every Lord's Day here, when the sermon like this morning is from the New Testament, what's going to happen when we gather tonight? There will be a message from the Old Testament, from an answering portion of the Old Testament that's either cited or the same topic is, is talked about. Or if the morning sermon is from the Old Testament, what will happen in the evening? The evening sermon will be from the New Testament and from a portion of Scripture which deals with the same thing that we've been thinking about from the Old Testament in the morning. Every Sunday together, we mean to be helped to see how the whole Bible is God's revelation of himself. And that's, of course, where Isaiah 42 speaks to us so powerfully of Jesus Christ. We see here that Jesus is the one prophesied through Isaiah, whom the Lord calls here in verse 18, my servant. Now, if you know Isaiah or if you've read Isaiah much, you've listened to sermons on Isaiah, you know that that servant language is very prominent in Isaiah. This is how the Lord speaks of the Messiah to come as my servant in a special sense, the special Messiah, using both the language of this servant, specially chosen, and of him essentially as his son. Matthew is showing us that Jesus was sent by God. 
He is the one who fulfills all these majestic passages in Isaiah about the servant of the Lord who would suffer for us, as he says in Isaiah 53, who would bear the sin of many. I trust you've heard that as we've been singing about it in hymn after hymn today. So if you're new to coming to a church or to Christianity, this is what we most fundamentally understand about Jesus. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who came specifically to live a life of perfect trust in His heavenly Father, a perfect goodness and holiness, but then to die a death He didn't need to die for Himself, but that He died for us, for all of us who would trust in Him, who would repent of our sins and rely on Him. And God took that sacrifice as fulfilling the justice due to all of us who have sinned as we have, so that he could then offer us a free forgiveness and acceptance through Jesus Christ. Friend, if you're not a Christian, that's the best news this church or any church in D.C. could ever give you. That's what Christianity has to offer. That's it, right there. Everything else is footnotes to that. That's what you want to understand. What does it mean that you could legitimately, not with God, passing by morality and kind of winking it wrong, but how could God, being as fully and completely and ferociously good as He is, countenance you forever in His presence, forgiven and an object of His love? Well, the answer is by what He did in sending His own Son, in sending Jesus. That's the good news. Brothers and sisters, if it was a happy joy of the sons to be the special servant of the Lord, you see how God has left us a helpful pattern for how we can be. We are called to follow Jesus in the humility of servanthood, to be bright witnesses for the Lord wherever He calls us, in our families, among our friends, Lord, even at work that He would give us. The language here in verse 18 is so sweet about the Father's regard for the Son. In verse 18, He's my beloved with whom I am well pleased. Now, of course, that language is going to sound familiar to those of you who've read your Bible very much. That's the same language the Lord used about Jesus at Jesus' baptism. Back in Matthew 3, 17, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It's the same language the disciples would hear again at the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Have you ever thought who this Son must be in order to so please our perfect Heavenly Father? He must have an answering nature that is completely good with no shadow of turning and no change forever for the worse. The perfections of the Father are answered by the perfections of the Son and the completion of their love. We get a glimpse of it in the best parts of our relationships with our own parents, our own children. Children, we should always want to please our parents. That should be a goal of ours. As long as their hopes and desires for us are good and right. How wonderful to see such greatness in a relationship of such love. Sometimes again when people are new to Christianity, they're surprised to see the God of the Bible is so affectionate. They may have thought of him as some sort of philosophical unmoved mover or some remote cosmic school principle. But friends, the God of the Bible is a God of affection. I wonder if you're here as a Christian, can you testify 
to finding satisfaction in Jesus Christ? This pleasure that the Father has in the Son would include a contentedness and a delight, even a joy. Is that how you find yourself relating to Jesus, the Son? By our faith union with Him, we become ourselves the object of God's joy, of God's delight, of His pleasure. Isn't that amazing? Our being united with Christ by faith means that God then takes joy in us, even as He takes joy in His own Son. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? That that's how He regards us, not by some fiction, but by the great truth of the atonement and the union we have with Christ by faith. But we should also notice that next phrase there in verse 18, I will put my spirit upon him. Again, this is from Isaiah 42. We saw this fulfilled at Jesus' baptism back in Matthew chapter 3. The Holy Spirit of God appears with some frequency in Matthew's gospel, so the spirit will figure prominently in the next miracle Matthew records that we hope to come to next week in our message. We're finding here the relationally thick language of the Trinity. The fact that our God is in these three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but also united together as one God only. In fact, the Bible teaches so great is this unity that to reject Jesus is to reject God. And when we become Christians, we are united to the Son by faith and have God's own Spirit come to reside in us permanently. Do you realize that? permanently. So we as a church, we worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We study the Gospels like Matthew's here with an unending fascination as we watch this great eternal Son of God become truly incarnate, humble Himself, even as He does in our passage here today. Because what we see is that this special servant of the Lord, God's own Son, becomes silent. The Word of God, he's called, becomes silent. And the silence is all the more amazing when we've understood who Matthew has shown us that Jesus is. So this is our, our second important statement about Jesus here. Number two, Jesus is silent before his enemies. Look at verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. What is this, this? Aware of this. Well, it's aware of the Pharisees' conspiracy. Uh, they're plotting together to destroy him, up in verse 14. They had unwittingly joined with other powers, like the evil Herod a generation before, who tried to destroy Jesus at his birth. But this was not the time for Jesus to finally contest with them about his identity. It was not the time. His time had not yet come, it says in John's Gospel for him to be captured and convicted and crucified. He had more he wanted to teach them. His showing and telling them to re-educate them about what the Scriptures really taught about the Messiah. The idea that was popular at the time of the Messiah as a conquering king was true, but it was only partly true. 
And it needed clarifying. It needed refining. It needed explaining further. And that's what Jesus was doing. There were greater enemies than Rome and more costly victories than liberating Jerusalem that had to be won. And Jesus was still in the midst of teaching and preparing and so arming his followers with the truth. And so we read here in verse 15 that Jesus withdrew. Just as Jesus had done back in chapter 4, when John the Baptist is arrested, Jesus withdraws. It was too early for a confrontation with the authorities. He withdrew from there, we read here in verse 15, presumably Capernaum, the area around it. Sometimes it's courageous to remove yourself from conflict. Sometimes the easier thing is to stay and be involved in the conflict right now. It's already been started. It's aimed at you specifically. But Jesus took this decision, and he took this decision again and again in the Gospels. He was willing to be misunderstood on this point in order to do deeper work and lay down a more firm and biblical foundation for understanding his ministry as the real Messiah. But this withdrawal was something that not only affected him and his disciples directly, look at verse 16. And ordered them not to make him known. Now this verse confuses many people. Why would Jesus say this? This is not the conclusion we would expect from all these healings that Jesus was doing. After all, he was doing these miracles as signs of his identity, right? He wasn't trying to do them anonymously. You know, hide behind a rock. See, Joe's leg is broken. Do something. Joe's leg now works. Joe looks around, doesn't see anybody. But he's happy that his leg is healed. No, Jesus, Jesus comes. Jesus himself personally heals. He's not making a secret of it. He's not... He's not trying to do it anonymously. If you remember back over in, in Luke 17, he uh, criticizes some of the lepers who he healed for not coming back and thanking him. So he definitely wants people to know that he is healing. The verb he uses here in verse 16 for ordered them suggests it's countering some action that's already taking place. So I assume the healed would naturally be talking about their healing. But you see, Jesus knew that that talkativeness could be unhelpful. And for the reasons that we've already just begun considering, that silence that Jesus was calling for was certainly not natural, given the healing that some of them had just experienced, but it was important. If Jesus was going to have enough time to teach and retrain the people's expectations of the Messiah, in that sense, even his silence and the temporary silencing that he ordered was an important part of his teaching. Besides, he was not enthralled to popularity, the will and pleasure of man, because he valued far more the will and pleasure of God, which his every action simply confirmed and increased. This is the longest Old Testament quotation in Matthew, and Matthew placed it here, I think, because of what we read in verse 19. He's quoting from Isaiah 42 again. He says, He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. It's really that second verse from Isaiah 42 in parallel lines that Matthew understood predicted Jesus' silence and is temporarily enjoining others to be silent about him. And that's why I think he picks these four verses up from chapter 42 of Isaiah and places them right here in his gospel. 
right after he recounts Jesus' own withdrawing, so not having the conflict now, and telling those he'd healed to be silent. Because Matthew understands, and I presume he understands this from being taught by Jesus, that this fulfills that prediction about the Messiah from Isaiah. It's really this contrast of Jesus' gentleness here with the Pharisees' murderous plot up in verse 14 that strikes one. They would plan and plot to destroy him, even do so on the Sabbath. Meanwhile, he wouldn't even quarrel with them. He really is the Prince of Peace. Have you ever noticed how much peace typifies Jesus? He will have conflict finally when his time has come, when he chooses. But until then, he will have peace. His people are to be marked by peace. This church is to be marked by peace. I praise God for how much this church is marked by peace. For how much, given the whirl of other things that go on around us in our community, when we step in and come together here, we know to a remarkable degree that unity of the Holy Spirit. Even when we have questions and disagreements, I pray that kind of peace will continue. It's typical of Jesus and where his ministry is. Here in verse 19, we're seeing how Jesus, how Isaiah rather, describes Jesus' commanding silence about his actions in this period of his ministry before his disciples clearly understood who he was. The servant was also described like this in Isaiah 53, verse 7, where we read, He opened not his mouth. The Messiah would be no rabble-rousing demagogue. He would teach with peace. He would personify the peace that he taught. What is it we read in Ecclesiastes 9? The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Solomon wrote that before Twitter. Jesus needed time to teach his disciples, and he would not be stampeded into forfeiting that by a premature confrontation. You see what Matthew is telling us, that Jesus was teaching even by this silence, this lack of quarreling. He was fulfilling the prophecies of the Messiah. That was predicted of the Messiah. I know this seems like an odd way to become king, but it was part of the nature of the kingdom that Jesus was bringing, and he knew exactly what he was doing. His probability of making a mistake in this was exactly 0%. Brothers and sisters, I hope that you personally can learn from our gentle Messiah. If you are a follower of Christ, is this gentleness typical of you? Is it in your home? Would your friends at work or in school see it, your neighbors? We're people who can be witnesses at work by doing what's right, even if it causes us to lose our job or be passed over for promotion. The Apostle Paul would see the gospel go forward by means of his own imprisonment. Trust the Lord with the hard circumstances in your life. And watch those very circumstances become testaments to God's faithful provision in hard times. The Bible doesn't teach us that we get everything we want right now. 
whether it's in our family or our church or our relationships. Many people here this morning are in conflict. Conflict they don't choose to be in. They wish they weren't in. But they don't know how to faithfully avoid it. Well, the Lord promises us that better is coming. Before we move on to our last point, one thing not to misunderstand. You realize this passage is no call for us to be silent about Jesus. This silence stops being enjoined after Matthew chapter 16 when he is confessed as the Messiah. Once Jesus has spent two, two and a half years teaching publicly about what the Messiah is, cleaning up all the misunderstandings, and once God the Holy Spirit enlightens the disciples so they understand Jesus is the Messiah, then Jesus turns toward Jerusalem, goes directly there, has the confrontation, and accomplishes his ministry. This is the time of teaching. So to allow that time for teaching, he needs people to be quiet so that he can have this time to explain, to retrain. Once the confrontation happens, and particularly once he's crucified and raised from the dead, there's no silence we're enjoined to. We're enjoined to testify. We're enjoined to tell. Matthew 28, Pentecost, Acts 2, the rest of the New Testament. Be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have within you. That's what's to typify us as Christians today, not this temporary silence that Jesus enjoined at that point in his ministry. We're under the opposite command, to tell and testify, to go into all the nations, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus had commanded them. Finally, in our passage, we see that number three, Jesus is the Savior of the nations. He is the Savior of the nations. Look there in verse 15. And many followed him, and he healed them all. Now for a year or two, we don't, we're not given exact times in, in the Gospels here, but for a year or two, Jesus had drawn great crowds, included in, the, in those crowds surprising types like Matthew, who was an outcast tax collector, who had been converted and become one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And he was the one who wrote this Gospel. It's not that the crowds were necessarily right. Jesus had clearly taught that there were great crowds of people headed to destruction. But Jesus had come to pull people out of just such crowds into those who follow him. And one way that Jesus announced his life-giving mission was by healing many people. We read here in verse 15 that Jesus healed them all. What an extraordinary sign. Uh, this isn't always Jesus' practice in the gospel. Sometimes there's a, a lack of faith, a lack of willingness to believe him. Sometimes he simply wants to move on and teach in other towns and villages because he says in Mark 1, that's why I've come. But Jesus healed many. And in this instance, all. What a powerful sign of the life that he had come to bring and of his personal power to bring it. Each individual healed was a preview of what was to come on a vast scale one resurrection morning. And it showed who had the power to do it. And it wasn't the Pharisees. And it wasn't Rome. And then look down at that last phrase in verse 18. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles or to the nations. It's very interesting that in verse 18, the phrase right above that is, God saying he'll put his spirit on the servant. It's interesting, the gift of the spirit there is coupled 
with proclamation. And that's what you're going to see consistently in the Old Testament and the New. When God gives the gift of His Spirit, it opens the mouth of the one to whom God's Spirit is given. There is a visible sign of the invisible gift. And the visible sign always includes what we say. Again and again in the Old Testament, you'll read the phrase, and the Spirit of God came on X and He prophesied saying. That's what you see in the book of Acts again and again. Friends, that's what's true here. God's Spirit comes and God's Spirit then equips and leads the Messiah to proclaim justice to the Gentiles. What does that mean, justice to the Gentiles? Sometimes when people think justice, they think it means, hmm, well then I guess it's going to be condemnation, judgment, and that is part of justice. But it also means salvation. How can justice mean salvation? Well, because it's God's own goodness and rightness finally coming about in evaluative judgment, but also, because we know how Christ is going to absorb that judgment for His own, also for salvation for many who will come from Israel and also from the nations. So that this coming of of justice is a coming not simply of correction for the wrong, but it also issues in salvation for those who will trust in Him. Jesus himself had pointed out to the messengers of the questioning John the Baptist that he, Jesus, was proclaiming what they should expect the Messiah to be proclaiming. But I know this is a surprising word for people to read here, justice. Is justice something that you want? When do you want justice? Or let me ask it the other way. When do you not want justice? If you understand better your own relationship to justice, you'll understand a little bit better how to be thinking through this assertion here in a a fully rounded kind of way to understand what this means. Jesus himself had come to bring justice. He is the substitutionary sacrifice for all of us who deserve in one sense, by God's justice, strictly considered, who deserve God's wrath, but who will, by God's mercy and His justice because of Christ's sacrifice, turn from our sins and trust in Christ and so receive grace and forgiveness. By His justice in that sense. And you look on down at verses 20 and 21, we see a little bit more about this. Verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. We read in verse 20 that a bruised reed he will not break. Again, Matthew here is quoting Isaiah 42. What's a reed? It's just, you know, that thing that grows in the field. Was it a special kind of reed in the Middle East? No, it's just like a reed, that thing that grows in the field, like hay or something like that. Well, what did did that stuff matter? Well, they used it for a lot of things, actually. They used it for for inking. They used it for 
uh, cushioning. They used it for, uh, they did use it for straws, believe it or not. Um, they used it for drawing. Um, they used it for musical instruments. Shepherds would use reeds uh, with their sheep. So it had a lot of uses. But the thing is about reeds, they were very, very plentiful. They were every place. And so a bruised reed, which doesn't mean a reed that has like a brown spot on it, but it means, you know, a reed that's like this. You know, it's been knocked over a little bit. It's not broken off, but it, it, it kind of ceases to be useful for its purpose. So a bruised reed, it's clear what you do with a bruised reed. You just throw it away and you get another reed. But the Messiah, strangely, we see in Isaiah is going to be marked by not doing that. He will not throw away. He will not break the bruised reed. So, so who is the bruised reed here? Well, it's those people who are of marginal value, who may not themselves seem to be the religiously respectable, the, the the, the bell of the ball, the one God would have his eye on because of their obvious virtue, the one who's been knocked about in part by their own sins. That bruised reed is the one the Messiah will have an eye for. You can imagine why this verse was precious to Matthew the tax collector, can't you? None of the other evangelists cite it, but Matthew does. He knows he had no virtue to draw God's eye of love to him. He knew that was because of the way God himself is. And doesn't this fit what we just seen that Jesus said at the end of Matthew 11 when he was calling for the overburdened to come and know his gentle lordship? I wonder if you understand yourself to be a bruised reed today. If so, Jesus is the Savior for you. Matthew goes on and gives another image of the kind of people who Jesus is the Messiah had come for in verse 20. And a smoldering wick he will not quench. Again, he's simply taking this from Isaiah 42. This smoldering wick is a very similar image to the previous one. A wick is smoldering. It's about exhausted. What do you do? You throw it out and you get another one. Just stick it in there. But that's not what the Messiah would do. He would cherish even the least little bit of God's grace and goodness in someone's life. Friends, Christianity is a religion with an abundance of compassion for the weak because Christ is a Savior with an abundance of compassion for the weak. Who here doesn't have some kind of experience with weakness? Doesn't that make you rejoice all the more in the strength of Christ? and are getting our confidence from our assurance that Jesus will do what he's promised. One of the cruelties of the faith teachers is exactly on this point. I was looking at Joel Osteen's study Bible uh, in this part of Matthew. And with the thing we looked at last week, you know, the, the guy with the withered hand in the synagogue, Osteen focuses on the faith of the man to hold his hand out. And I just thought, that's so utterly demonic. It puts the focus on us, where the focus shouldn't be. As if to say, it's that man's ability. He was willing to thrust his chin out and, and have faith. That's what Satan wants you to think about. Meanwhile, God is pointing the camera to Jesus. 
the person of Jesus, he is the mighty one. He is the one who can give life where there is no life. He is the one who can give faith and strength where there is no faith and strength. He is the one who will cherish the bruised reed and the smoldering wick. He is the source of our confidence, not ourselves and our own faith. It's the example of Jesus that again and again leads us to reach out to the weak, to those of whom the world thinks very little. Brothers, sisters, how are you doing reflecting that compassion? D.C. is a rough place for that. D.C. is a place very much about strength to strength to strength. Do you see a place in your own life where you're able to reflect this deeply Christ-like virtue that if you're here as a Christian, you have known yourself from God as he has reached out to you in love. We see here in verse 20 that Jesus' compassion has a point. There's a kind of chronology in the Messiah's ministry. We read in verse 20, until he brings justice to victory. Very much like what Matthew had set up in verse 18. So this justice the Messiah brings by proclaiming justice to the nations, he will bring to victory. That is, it will have a point. It will have a final and eternal establishment of his good and right purposes. He will succeed. This victory will show itself through Christ's cross and resurrection and all that comes through it. He fills us with his spirit and so unites us to himself and to each other. In this last verse in our passage, we see the strongest statement yet, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Jesus had said this back in Matthew chapter 8 when he had mentioned that many would come from the east and from the west on that last day. The victory achieved will be inclusive of many Gentiles. Thus, it was clearly predicted that they could hope in Jesus and hope in his certain victory. God had never had a plan only for Israel. We read in Isaiah 49, verse 6, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So the Pharisees plot for death, and Jesus plans for the life of the nations. In fact, so lost are the nations that Jesus is their only hope. Jesus is our only hope. Friend, do you come here this morning finding your hopes bound up in Christ? There is no better, more secure place for them to be. So we pray for our nation, we pray for other nations, but we don't put our hopes in the nations. We keep our eyes on the promises of God that have always been for the nations. From the calling of Abram in Genesis 12, where he calls out the descendants of Abram to be a blessing to all the nations. To Isaiah's wonderful statement in Isaiah 49.6 that it would be too light a thing for God to have sent his Messiah merely for the house of Israel, but for all those in other nations too. The, the final vision we have of the people of God is of them being from every race, tribe, and nation. Jesus commands in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we're not surprised in Revelation 5, 9, when we find the choir singing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people 
and nation until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles, the nations will hope. So you see, Jesus is the special servant of the Lord. He was silent before his enemies for a time. But he is the Savior of the nations. It's a simple message. This is who Jesus is. I pray not, you're not missing him today. Who else would you trust with your life? Yourself. All your hopes, finally. Before him. Let's pray. Lord God, you know those other things and other people we are tempted to hope in rather than in the Lord Jesus. We pray that right now, by your powerful spirit, you would pry those false hopes from our fingers. You would cause our eyes to look to Jesus and that you would give us the gift of faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.